0: welcome to the forensic nutritionist podcast my name is fiona tuck i'm a nutritional medicine practitioner and a qualified skin therapist for over 25 years the forensic nutritionist podcast takes an investigative approach into all things nutrition gut health and skin using qualified experts to bring you information that you can trust we are all unique The information presented herein is not intended to diagnose, to treat or cure disease. Please seek professional medical guidance prior to modifying any diet, exercise or lifestyle program. Let us begin. On the podcast today we have Sarah McMahon, she's a psychologist and director of Body Matters, a quality treatment service for eating disorders and body image issues. Sarah's worked in the field of eating disorders for 15 years, supporting hundreds of people to achieve recovery. She holds a Masters of Public Health and has a passion for educating the community about disordered eating. Sarah is dedicated to prevent the toxic cultural environments that perpetuate eating issues and body shame. Sarah, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. I'm so excited to talk to you because this is also an area that is very close to my heart, um, passionate about what you're doing. So can you explain or um, share with us you specialize in, in eating disorders how did you become involved in in such a I guess complex and um,
1: really interesting area firstly thank you for having me it's such a pleasure to be here and uh, especially because we do have so much so many overlapping interests here and essentially the way that I came or found myself here I really feel as though this is an area that found me it wouldn't certainly wasn't something that I would have Thought when you told me when I was growing up that I would be working as a psychologist with this particular interest area uh, As a teenager, I had a lot of personal experience with eating disorders mm-hmm. And I, part of that also meant that I was exposed to eating disorders quite significantly with other people uh, as well And I think the thing mm-hmm. that I was really struck by, this was back in the, in the late 1990s just how difficult it was to access quality treatment mm. and particularly the fine balance where therapists were compassionate uh, where they needed to be compassionate and firm where they needed to be firm and I, I i felt that there was just a dire lack of services and i sort of made a little promise to myself that if i was ever in in a position that i could help that that's something that i wanted to do so i was studying architecture and i ultimately i, I um, retrained as a psychologist or trained as a psychologist and here I am now, never looked back.
0: Fantastic. Yes. Um, you know, and full disclosure, a lot of the, the listeners may know, but for those of the for those listening that don't know, I myself um, have suffered with eating disorders. In fact, I probably would go so far as to say I've had pretty much every eating disorder in the book. I've been hospitalized for, for anorexia. Um, and I know, you know, that started for me when I was 16 back in the UK. So I totally um, hear and have had that experience firsthand when, you know, I did find that speaking to medical professionals and um, psychologists, it was very matter of fact and, and quite harsh. And, you know, I remember being sat down and almost forced to eat a cheese sandwich and that really didn't sit well with me or resonate with me I just wanted to scream and I'm not a violent person but I was like you just don't understand so um, I think what what you're doing is is so important um, I'm pleased to share with everyone that um, that's something that I've, I've worked through but how common are eating disorders because I do see a lot of it myself you know I, I, I have consulted with people that are recovering from eating disorders and having had eating disorders myself,
1: I can spot them a mile off. So how common are they? That's a really good question. And I think if we're looking at statistics, the statistic or the most recent statistic is 16% of Australians. Right. Um, and binge eating disorder, which we're focusing on a little bit more today, 6%. Um, but I think it's important, well, firstly, these statistics are often changing depending on yeah. the samples that are being they're being drawn from. But also, I think if you can think about eating disorders a little bit like an iceberg, that there's mm. the, the bit of the iceberg that we can see, which is the perhaps the clinical eating disorders, but really there's the uh, the bit of the iceberg, the big bit that we don't see, um, and that's the non-clinical eating well, disorders. Well, is it, isn't yeah. it? Absolutely. And so that's where um, I, I don't think we know just how severe this no. is as a problem. The Butterfly yeah. Foundation a few years ago came out with some su- a suggestion that there was At least a million australians suffering from eating disorders so it's a huge problem in australia and internationally yeah um i mean yeah we're talking about people i guess that have been having treatment
0: for eating disorders but there could be a whole variety of people out there and even people listening that do have eating disorders that haven't actually seeked help or maybe don't even know that their eating is
1: disordered. That's right, and I think in the the culture that we're living in today, that so many types of disordered eating are normalised. Um, and if you think about mm. um, fad diets, um, being people being congratulated for going on fad diets and losing weight, if we think about things like uh, orthorexia, which mm. is a, not not necessarily a technical term for eating disorder an eating disorder, but a preoccupation with health and wellness um, to the point that the someone living with that condition is very uh very similar to someone with somewhat something like anorexia where they are consumed um to the point that it's impacting on every aspect of their life by completing or or even eating
0: out and bit you know they they want to make sure it's organic or there's if there is a certain ingredient in there that you know they just refuse to eat and I think it does come down to balance the moderation and not getting caught up on the on the small stuff um, yeah. and, and looking at the bigger picture. Definitely. But some people are so caught up in that that they, they can't separate themselves
1: that, from that. That's right. And I think it's hard when we live in a society that sort of normalizes and congratulates um, the idea that removing food groups um, or being preoccupied with wellness is actually a healthy thing. And mm. there is some some a point to which it is healthy but then i think the thing you're touching on is when someone it's impacting on someone's ability to function like go out go out with friends for example then that is problematic
0: absolutely and i think we have to be careful as well you know in a society now it people i mean i've had people say to me oh let's go be fatties and have dessert or, or something mm-hmm. like that I mean and for me actually that is a bit of a, a trigger if somebody says that why do we have to put guilt with something if you're eating a dessert or, or chocolate it should mm-hmm. be all things in in moderation or even when people comment on weight by the first thing they some people will say is you look great you've lost weight um, I think for some people with with eating disorders talking about weight is something we shouldn't be... Well, for anyone, really, yes. we should be healthy
1: and looking great because we're feeling healthy. It doesn't necessarily mean about how we're looking. That's right. I think it just reinforces the idea that weight is is perhaps more, much more important than it really should be. Um, and at the end of the day, if we're engaging in health-giving behaviour, our weight will settle where it's supposed to, to for us. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So with eating
0: disorders that we know about, um, that where people have thought professional help what is the recovery rate do we have any stats on that or how how successful is seeking professional help to somebody that is in the midst of a, an eating disorder
1: it's another great question and again the statistics vary according to the you know the journal that's or the study that's being mm. undertaken I think um, for a long time there was an idea that it was perhaps a true recovery rate of about 20%, a mortality rate of 20%, which is often thrown around, that eating disorders or anorexia is the most deadly of um, mental health conditions. And then that there'd be varying degrees of disordered eating that people in between would live with um, who who hadn't actually been able to achieve true recovery, uh, but maybe were able to function um, and live a much better quality of life, but still have some sort of compromise around their relationship with food. But I think it's also really important to remember that these follow-up studies are, there's a lag from when someone's diagnosed and when they seek treatment to when they can have Mm. a follow-up study. So we're talking about people who may have undertaken treatment in the 80s, you know, to to have like a long-term or 90s, to have a long-term follow-up. So there's much more promise with more recent treatment, I think, as people are becoming more educated around eating disorders that, uh, eating disorders are are seen I think a lot more accurately now, I think we still have a lot of misunderstanding but um, certainly when eating disorders were very first diagnosed the treatment prescribed was that you'd go separate the child from the family and that they would, I'm, I'm talking about the very very yeah. first cases of anorexia separate the person from the family and refeed them and then rejoin them to the family yeah. and I think for a very long time that was really even into about the last 20 years that was still the way that treatment has um, mm. gone about but I think in America there's been some great more, much more compassionate approaches and using lived experience more so uh, using and integrating carer support more um, mm. rather than sort of the individual which is what had had happened for such a long time so this is a really long way of me saying I think that there's <laughs> promise for research and recovery outcome for recovery outcomes moving forward um, than what they're, the research suggests.
0: Right, And I guess as well, if somebody is having help for an eating disorder, how much they want the help or how ready, probably not so much about wanting the help because I'm sure everybody wants help, but how ready they are to, to take that help on board. And I know there's all different types of eating disorders, but surely when you're caught in the grasp of an eating disorder, the way that you're thinking is probably so warped that it's not literally just you know, flicking a switch in the brain and then suddenly the eating disorder's gone. I mean, this is something that takes a long time to be able
1: to retrain learned behavior. That's, I think that's spot on, Fiona. And I think, you know, one of the things that I see with the clients that I work with is once someone makes up their mind and they want to recover, really that's quite, you know, that's the easy bit because there is, mm. there are treatment um, programs which have been well tested and have high levels of efficacy. Uh, and eating disorders are typically one of the only mental illnesses that people want to or feel ambivalent about and, and p- perhaps don't want to recover from. And I think working with and understanding that ambivalence, that's, that's the tricky bit. And that's what, in my opinion, uh, makes eating disorders so difficult to treat and eating disorders so difficult to recover from. Well, I guess as well, we'd say, and
0: I mean, some food in a way could be an addiction for some people when it comes to eating disorders and um, food, you can't stop eating because you're going to die. So if it's something like alcohol or drugs, you can just remove that from the life and start again. But food is something that we are always surrounded by and it's something that we need to stay fit and healthy. So I think... My, my personal view on, on eating disorders and recovery is that it's one of the hardest things to recover from because it's not like you can just go, okay, I'm giving up smoking now. That's gone out of my life. It's but, something that it, it's a bit like saying to an alcoholic, you have, um, okay, you're not going to be an alcoholic anymore. We, we're not just going to take the alcohol away. I'm going to give you a bottle, but now you've got to be controlled control with it. You know, it's yeah. a little bit like that. It, it's
1: very hard um, condition, I think, to overcome. That's right, and I think from a, I, I, I guess I certainly didn't mean to be simplistic mm. before when I oh, say that no, it was e- yeah. e- easy to recover yeah. once you've made up your mind to recover, because it's, um, you know, it's. I think um, I would say for myself and and probably for everyone I know that's recovered, it would be the hardest thing that that you probably have ever done in your life to recover from an eating disorder, um, but at the same time. Um, it's also, um, you know, it's, a, it's really a lifelong journey of, of trying to re-establish yes. a healthy relationship yeah. with food. And I think part of that is the fact that someone might have perhaps had a clinical eating disorder for a, you know, a discrete period of time, but often there's been years of disordered mm. eating before that. And often people have never had a healthy relationship with food. Yeah. Um, and, and that's perhaps one of the reasons why the eating disorders developed in the first place. And yeah. so it's really learning for many people as an adult what, other people have learned as children, how to eat intuitively, how to trust your body, how to be connected to your body. And and you you saying that, how
0: much do you think that is influenced, you know, as we're growing up and how we are introduced to to food? Is there much of a correlation there? I mean, I know, for instance, in my family, we didn't necessarily sit all at the table together. I know my mother was always on a diet, would never eat lunch, um, lived off coffee and cigarettes in the day didn't do her a lot of favors, to be honest. But I think I grew up in that dieting culture um, in the 80s. And it was all very much low-fat, Jane Fonda workouts um, and lean cuisine meals and um, diet, 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 diet. Mm -hmm. So I was, to me, grown up thinking that that was normal and that you couldn't eat normally and be a normal size. And I had to relearn that myself. But in your experience, how often do you see people with eating disorders that um, have, what is the link there with with growing up and that, that family connection with
1: food? It's, there's a very strong link and I, I guess I want to be careful in, in saying that because I certainly don't want to point the finger at no, parents exactly. or families um, and culture is much broader than yep. families but yep. it's definitely um, many, many cases I can think of where yep. they're, so a child has developed an eating disorder in the context of a, a family where there's been disordered eating and in particular a mother that's internalised dieting culture and it has, has not modelled a healthy relationship with food herself.
0: Yeah, and of course may, there may be people coming from families which have got the complete opposite, that have got a very strong um, culture around food and a very supportive and, and healthy culture but then it may be the media or, or social media and I mean I I... Don't envy mothers bringing up young girls now with this culture of social media and Instagram where everyone is obsessed and looking at their body and taking photos and photoshopping. And, you know, we've got the Kardashians who have got such abnormal body shapes, which you, you wonder how they are that shape. I'm, I'm sure they have been enhanced. And then there are young girls that are maybe going through puberty and looking at these shapes and thinking, I'm meant to look like that. And so I think, you know, it's not, there could be a family influence, but we're definitely not saying it's always a family influence. There's a lot of um, social pressure these days. And I think now more than ever, that can really affect young girls as well. And not just young girls, anybody
1: really. I think so and I think for young people growing up now the the added element of that is obviously social media mm. and so this idea of snapchat, snapchat dysmorphia that people right. are taking photos of themselves and and actually it's the very opposite of what we do to help people build a positive ob- body image they, they become preoccupied with the body parts mm. that aren't quite right they um they fought they change them through filters or through um Through using different applications to to make those changes and so there's a preoccupation on the parts which are perceived to be flawed Uh, and this is also something that's available for for young people who don't actually have a solid sense of identity so it's really really uh dangerous i think uh, these external factors that, that young people are subjected to
0: and also i think now with sort of the aesthetic market there's not much of us that is real anymore fake fingernails fake eyelashes hair extensions, having lip filler, cheek filler, Botox, you know, all of these things. Um, Just a few weeks ago, I found out you can even have foundation tattooed into your skin now. Wow. Um, You know, and and the eyebrows now are tattooed on, fake tan. There is so much people do now to try and morph themselves in a way. it's,
1: It's almost, to me, morphing into a form of body dysmorphia. Certainly normalising mm. something that's not normal, you know, that, that's that's an extension of and pushing the boundaries around how we should look.
0: Absolutely. So with eating disorders, I know there's a variety of different types. We've got anorexia, um, overeating, um, orthorexia in a way is falling into that now as well. But, but an area that I really wanted to talk to you about today because it, it's something I... I hear from, you know, just talking to friends or on social media where, where is binge eating disorder, where people maybe have been dieting or, or depriving themselves and then can't sustain it and then start binging. So can you explain a little bit about what binge eating disorder is? Is that is that different to bulimia where people, um, you know, throw up or use laxatives? Where does binge eating disorder
1: fit into this? Because it's quite a new classification. It isn't is a it? new yeah. classification. So it was put in, previously. It was an area for review and and for further research. And so then, when the DSM five was introduced in two thousand and thirteen, binge eating disorder finally became its own diagnosis. Even though it's been around for many many years, and I certainly I've got people that have come to me um, for treatment who've. Spoken to their school counselor, you know, back years and years ago, and being sent away because they the the school counselor said they didn't think they had a problem. They did have a problem, but it just wasn't a diagnosis then. So it's great that there is a diagnosis now because it means we can start to have uh, research into treatment. Um, But basically, the diagnosis is really when someone eats a huge amount of food in a discrete period of time, and there's a sense of uncontrol, being out of control when that's engaged in so i guess my question to that is you know how much of that is normal
0: um and and when does it become abnormal so for instance let's just say you've had dinner you're sitting in front of the tv and then it's a saturday night and somebody rips open a packet of tim tams and then before they know it they've looked down and they've eaten a whole packet of tim tams is that binge eating disorder or is that just someone that's just got a bit carried away and you know,
1: maybe just overeats. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's a really important distinction, T- trying to put words around and name exactly mm. what's happening because a lot of people will turn up for treatment and say that they are engaging in binge eating when in actual fact that's not the case. So I think we have eating past fullness as a as a starting place. Most people will, will do that at some point in time. Um, that's quite common. Um, then there's compulsive eating, which is, is not binge eating. It's sort of eating, maybe if we're eating chips in front of the TV and we're... We're not eating mindfully. Um, kind of comfort eating. Comfort eating, yeah. yeah so my, maybe it's coming from an emotional basis. Yeah. Um, but again, uh, that's, that's different from binge eating. So binge eating is also typically uh, fueled by shame hmm. um, and so it's often secretive. So compulsive eating may not be secretive. It's, it's usually not shame driven. Binge eating often will happen in secret. People will purchase food ahead of time with the anticipation of a binge. Um, the hide wrappers usually afterwards so that there's no trace or evidence of a binge so I think shame is probably the thing that's um, characterizes binge eating in addition to something like compulsive eating right uh, yeah. and with binge eating for instance so um, would
0: that then result in behavior where somebody needed to purge themselves or is that something where they they just keep eating and then that's it they, they
1: don't because with bulimia that's then encourage purging, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, so there's different types of binge eating, so, and I think it's easy to get caught up on definitions yeah. and diagnosis, yeah. which in some ways I don't think is very yeah. helpful because Not change anything? yeah, here. exactly, eating disorders are so transdiagnostic, in my opinion, yeah. um, it's very common for someone to start with one eating disorder and end up with another one, um, and so I think it's much more helpful to just focus on the symptoms that that person's experiencing, mm. Because people who have eating disorders also often have a bit of an internalized hierarchy about eating disorders, um, which is, you know, I guess it shows shows the perverse how perverse eating disorders actually are. And by that, do you mean one is superior to yeah, the other? Then? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so if someone suddenly ends up with one diagnosis that they didn't have previously, it can be really distressing. So again, I think focusing on symptoms rather than diagnosis is more helpful. But Typically, in terms of a diagnosis of binge eating versus bulimia, that's the distinction, that bulimia would engage in some sort of compensatory behaviour, most commonly purging, um, but sometimes people engage in, or often people engage in other forms of compensation after they've binged. So like a, mad exercise Yeah, or exactly, a very intentional attempt to re- somehow get rid of the yeah. energy that's been consumed, whereas typically binge eating disorder don't, people who suffer from binge eating don't, disorder don't actually do that. Um, at least, not in such a an overt way. So, with binge eating disorder,
0: does that tend to stem from somebody that is dieting that leads to the the binging? Who would be a likely person to suffer from this? And saying that, you know, again, I have been someone that that suffered from this. You know, I've had anorexia, I've had um, bulimia, I've had binge eating disorder. So. Um, from my own viewpoint, I totally agree with you, eating disorders can all, can all merge. But do you see a particular personality type that um, tends to
1: tend to suffer from binge eating? If I had to um, sort of summarise something anecdotally, it would certainly be um, and and distinguish people who are maybe have a, a pure diagnosis of binge eating disorder who haven't got there from a pathway of disordered eating, like a a more more traditional eating disorder like anorexia or bulimia. I'd say often people with binge eating disorder have sat at a slightly high body weight growing up, often been subjected to weight-based bullying, uh, often been dragged along with their parents to weight watchers or put on diets from a young age, so have internalised a a perspective from a very young age that they're fat um, and and that's the way that they see themselves. um, and, And often accompanied with that so it's not just their relationship with food and their relationship with their body but it's their ability to manage stress um right. and and emotions so perhaps haven't had an opportunity to learn healthy ways of coping with strong emotions and so eating becomes a coping strategy and do you find
0: something like this you know and I, i've had clients that have come to see me that have been really sort of caught up in a an eating disorder like this like binge eating disorder um, and there does seem to be specific triggers what do you notice um, in binge eating disorder are there, are there specific triggers that will start people off on on this journey I know you said maybe they were overweight as a child but I guess that what I'm saying is do you find that there's a particular person that somebody that suffers more from anxiety for instance
1: Yes, I mean, I think, I guess, there'd be um, many cases where it'd be there'd be some sort of comorbid uh, mental health condition like anxiety or depression. Right. Seen it uh, in bipolar as well, so um, with either manic or depressive episodes, yeah. which yeah. is which is important because the way that that's treated is very different from someone who is engaging in binge eating in a from a different kind of basis. Um, obviously, someone has bipolar, then it's more regularly managed with medication. Yeah. Um, whereas if it's if it's kind of evolved out of depression or anxiety or an attempt to manage stress, um, then then the focus of treatment is much more around that. Um, and then saying that, I guess um,
0: you know, because eating disorders are classified as psychological conditions, which is why we're talking yeah. to a clinical psychologist. Where do you start when you're dealing with eating disorders? And let's, I mean, I know they're probably all different. Let's say something like binge eating disorder. Is, is this an instance where medication would be helpful or do you see quite a good success rate just by having a, a
1: one-on-one several sessions with a, a patient? Medication sometimes used. I wouldn't be using it as a, a frontline sort of treatment approach. I think that's something that could potentially be explored down the track, and there's only, as far as I'm aware, only one medication that's been very recently developed, which has targets binge eating primarily. Most medication would be targeting something like depression or anxiety, and so someone would have a reduction in symptoms potentially because that's managed. Um, But I mean, the way that I would be working with someone always would be firstly talking and and working around motivation to change, because if this is a coping strategy that's been helpful for someone, then uh, there's going to be ambivalence about making changes and removing that. um, And typically with motivation, there's two parts to that. One is how much do you want to change, but also how much do you believe you can change? Because often people have had disordered eating for many years and have had multiple treatment approaches. So certainly at Body Matters, it's one of the things that we always take into consideration that that many people who come to see us have had years of disorder, multiple hospital Mm. admissions, multiple attempts of of treatment and so trying to understand what actually they have done and haven't done what's worked and why has a treatment been offered when someone actually wasn't at a place that they were able to use it or in a headspace that it was going to be beneficial
0: you know one of
1: the the things that um, it was actually a a
0: psychologist said to me and I found it the most helpful and I still use it today with um, people I speak to and, and with myself as well was with eating disorders when you feel that you're caught in it um, and maybe it's an urge to binge or, or something like that stop and think what is really going on so it might yeah. be someone obsessing about calories or what they've just eaten or that they, they've just got completely obsessed with label reading just to take a moment and and the words to say you know just stop a minute and think what is it that's really going on because that just a symptom of, of you know getting caught up in the calories or the about to the binge or, or whatever it's all a symptom to deflect of what's what's really going on and for me
1: um that was a, a huge light bulb moment that's a really important point and i think it for people even in a relapse prevention stage of recovery because one of the one of the tricky things with this population is that people become well they drop out of treatment because things are looking better Um, but relapse prevention is so essential when there's been years of disorder but I think the the great thing about what you're talking about is it's a litmus test you know when for someone even years after they've had an eating disorder they might have these sorts of funny thoughts or feelings that come back and um, it's easy to then recognize it straight away and okay something's not right at the moment Because I know when I'm feeling like this, it's because I'm actually stressed or I'm not happy or, you know, or whatever else might be be going on. Yeah,
0: I guess the other thing as well, if there is anyone out there that, that is suffering from an eating disorder or binge eating disorder, it is that readiness to want to change. And I know there's a lot of people that really desperately want to change. But then, as you were saying really earlier, and there's that ambivalence. If you take away the coping strategy of whether, that let's just say that was a binge, that is their coping strategy to deal with something in life that they don't want to deal with because that's their way of avoidance in a way. If you take that away, then surely that is going to then bring up all of this stuff stuff that they don't want to face and they, they don't want to deal with. I often say to people, you know, giving up smoking, for instance, smoking creates smoke screen so you don't have to deal with things and then take the, the cigarettes away and then people are like, oh my God, I'm. you see people splitting up with partners or, you know, yeah. suddenly things become a lot more clear. They, yeah. they have this clarity of, of what's really going on that they haven't been dealing with. And really, I guess, eating disorders would be a similar way. They would need to see someone like yourself to be able to learn the coping strategies
1: because you have to replace that coping strategy with something, right? Absolutely, need to learn healthy ways of coping. Yeah, that's right, and that's a key part of recovery: is learning. And, those and strategies. what would be
0: a healthy, you know, coping strategy? Because for some people, they just wouldn't know what that is.
1: Yeah, and I, th- I think ultimately there's two parts then once someone wants to make change so kind of linking this back to what you're asking now what would be Mm. a healthy coping strategy one is not using food which actually kind of brings up the issue to cope with so part of treatment going back to your question is how how do you work with someone who has been eating disorder there is a part of at least initially establishing mechanical eating and a a relationship with food because once you've got mechanical eating in place then you've got more capacity to start to experience hunger experience fullness and kind of Connect with your body in a way that you haven't been able to when you've been unwell but in parallel with that is the fact that it brings up other thoughts and feelings and so it's learning ways to to manage the i know i know some of these things feel very sound and feel very trite when you're in the middle of an eating disorder but things like having a bath or going for mm. a walk or taking deep breaths mm. when you're in the middle of an eating disorder and the the experience is so intense it's mm. hard to imagine something like that actually being helpful um, but ultimately it's about trying on like in the way children try on different outfits and play, play different games to work out who they want to be it's trying these different things and having some space to try and learn what actually does work for you and it's yeah. different for different people and
0: there's meditation, yoga I know exactly. yoga can be you know, and I, I personally have found yoga incredible yeah. um, for really getting in tune with your
1: body and, and your emotions and, and your feeling as well that's right and exercising is fantastic, so long as you can kind of separate it from yes. eating disorder. And I think one of the help, most helpful frameworks, which is what we work from at Body Matters, is a health at every size framework. So focusing on engaging in health-giving behavior is... Um, not to lose weight you know just shifting the focus and seeing health as a holistic concept I think that's
0: a great point to mention as well because um I do see so many people that are like oh my god I've got to go on a run because I just ate a burger or how many how long do I have to run for to burn off these calories and I think as a society and you know I work with the media as well and often it will be you know Easter comes up and you know how how far do you have to run to burn off a a chocolate egg or something like that you know so I think with with the media we get so caught up and and that doesn't help drive this mentality of exercise is to burn calories and I think that's something that really needs to be changed because exercise is something that we need for our health and for our mental well-being um, Calories is just something that happens, but it, it shouldn't be why we're actually exercising. We shouldn't be exercising to look a certain way. It should be to feel a certain that's way. That's exactly right. I think that's such a, a great point you mentioned. So with something like binge eating and even, say, bulimia, for instance, um, where people do go on these planned or secret binges, I guess after that there is going to come a, a feeling of... Guilt, um, or very low self esteem, and I guess it's a perpetuating problem. Where if somebody is, I guess, eating in secret as a secret eater, um, and then is hiding the food, and then is going on a binge, and then maybe doesn't want to tell everyone about it, or then feels bad, and then there's this guilt and low self esteem. This would be, I would see that the hardest part to change, and. How successful is this do you see in clinic where where people can actually break that? Because there must be a a correlation between self-esteem as well.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think one of the most helpful tools around that is is actually focusing on self-compassion. because. The problem with self-esteem is it's highly correlated with success. Yes. And so it's great when things are working well for you, um, but because it's contingent on success, it's not very helpful when things aren't going well. No. And so self-compassion, there's a nice sort of framework around self-compassion in terms of things that you can focus on, so talking to yourself in a kind way, being mindful, and also remembering that your experiences of of pain and suffering are part of a common human experience – that there's other people that are out there suffering in the same way that you are as well, and you're not alone and isolated in your suffering. And so, those three elements: um, being kind to yourself, mind, being mindful, and seeing suffering as part of the human experience mm. are things that once we can start, once we start to talk to ourselves and work on our relationship with ourselves around those things, and we are more self-compassion, compassionate, then we're much more likely to feel kind, kindly, and, and good. About ourselves, and the great thing about that is, it actually works for us when we're not going so well. Yes. Um, Whereas, of course, self-esteem doesn't, and it's also, you know, it's quite counterintuitive. We would think that self-compassion. When I talk to my clients about self-compassion, often they they're worried that they're self-compassionate that they will let themselves go, or that they will never be able to stop eating. You know, Mm. that they'll never uh, if they're too forgiving of themselves, that they will end up. Um, you know, ultimately that they can't trust themselves and end up in a place that they don't want to be when in actual fact the research suggests the very opposite because um, sort of so-called failure is actually used as feedback it sort of informs and is used in a way that is helpful and so it um, means that self-compassion is actually correlated with success at work it's successful relationships Um, again it's such an important point
0: to make and again i don't think sort of instagram and social media helps because we're always celebrating our wins and oh look at me and i've done this and i've done that but very rarely do we say where we failed or you know that there does seem this need more than ever to get validation externally and i think for me in I know even you know, in my family, and my husband, that was an area that we've all struggled with. You know, not, not having that own
1: self-compassion and it's something we've definitely tried to, to work on. It's a really important thing to work on mm. and, and it's, it's something I think when, when we can learn to be self-compassionate then it, it sets us up for a much healthy, healthier and happier way of existing.
0: And something I always sort of say to people as well because the amount of people that I hear that talk negatively about themselves, you know, I hate my legs, I hate this, I hate that. And, and that breaks my heart because I think, you know, there's a lot of people out there that would love legs, whether they've got cellulite or, you know, maybe a few extra kilos on them or um, they may need extra kilos. But I, I think, you know, one of the best places to start is. You know with that compassion but also catch what you're actually telling yourself Mm. as well you know quite often you'll hear people say oh you're so stupid or don't do that you idiot or i I just don't think that's a great place to start and i think you know even if we can start to pat ourselves on the back a little bit more and just catch that negative self-talk which i feel can be not only damaging to yourself but really damaging to to the people
1: around you as well that's right. I I couldn't agree more with you about that. And I think you also raised a really important point a few seconds ago when you were talking about Instagram and social media. Again, there's no space for failure. The no. fact is that failure uh, or not achieving things is is a is something that we're all going to experience. Yeah. And there's no space for that in our society these days. Um, and that, that, of course, then feeds into the fact that we can't build coping strategies about something that we're not that we're not actually allowed to have happened to us. Mm. So uh, learning learning how to and being real about failure and being real about the fact that things don't go in the way that we want them to do, um, then that's that's also important because the social media perpetuates an idea of you know the highlights real, isn't it? And Um, and that's not actually realistic
0: and even i think you know children
1: these days
0: and you know i was talking to a friend the other day and that they'd they'd been a a child's party and they'd been playing pass the parcel and i was like oh i I used to love pass the parcel who won oh no everyone gets a toy now everyone gets something Mm -hmm. and i was like what um so that does worry me as well we all want to be included and that's great but then you have to accept at some point in your life that there will be times when you don't win. Yeah. Um, and I, I do worry sometimes what we're, what we're setting the future up to be if we're,
1: you know, doing Yeah, that protecting, sort of... protecting, um, protecting ourselves and protecting children from, from pain and suffering when that's actually something we need to yes. learn to build resilience yeah. around. I think Thomas Edison said it well, um, you know, obviously the adventure of the light bulb, I have not failed. I've just found yes. ten thousand ways that don't work. Yeah, and you know, and that's that's a, I think a really helpful way for us to be thinking about things. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think even last
0: week, I was like, I was having a week where I was like, oh, everything's like going wrong, and should I? I was actually very close to putting a big post up on on social media to say how much I had failed last week, <laughs> but I didn't. Um, but it, it is interesting to see see people's reaction on on failure, and um, I, I do. Think and it probably is something I will share more about when you do have bad days and when, when you things do fail. I, I do think it's important to talk about that rather than than wins all the time because quite often somebody will look at social and say, "Oh my god, your life is amazing and this is fantastic," and then it may be very may not be feeling like that for the person that mm. they're saying it to. It's, it's just photographs and somebody else's interpretations. Mm. So mm. I think that was a, a really good point to to mention. So. If somebody has got an eating disorder, and I mean, we're talking now about binge eating disorder, but I guess general eating disorders as well, what are the, the health dangers?
1: Well, I think one of the things that we become preoccupied about is weight, and that's yeah. not not necessarily very helpful yeah. um, because weight is likely, it's, it's going to change when someone has an eating disorder and there's a lot of fear-mongering uh, in my view, particularly by the medical profession, uh, and lots of—I mean, the medi- medical profession and, and uh, in, uh, universities are, are funded largely by um, weight loss companies. So I think we need, yeah, we need to. A lot of research into yeah. obesity is funded by weight right. loss companies. So there's a lot of um, fear yeah. around that. When, in, in actual fact, uh, weight—anyone considered a heavy weight because they're on medication or because of. Poor education around food; mm. it doesn't necessarily mean people have an eating disorder, mm. um, and certainly, again, we see this with people being turned away from medical tre- like treatment because because their weight and um, mm. they, they're not thin enough to have an eating disorder, or you don't have an eating disorder, you're a normal weight, or you're you're actually fat. Um, you know that that's really not very helpful. So um, moving away from focusing on weight is, is mm. something that's really really important um, because that gets taken that gets blamed I think quite unfairly for things. Um, but I mean obviously when you're eating a huge amount of food in a discrete period of time, that's going to result in health impacts around just um, the impact that that would have on your body. Um, but psychologically it's extremely distressing as well. So. Um, people with bulimia and i I don't know that the research around binge eating disorder around this but i suspect it's quite similar a much more uh, a very high risk of suicide and self-harm and those sorts of things because um because it's just so psychologically distressing to engage in a behavior that you feel that feel as though you can't stop Mm. Mm. that's
0: yeah it's it's, it's it's a terrible cycle to to get into and i guess With anorexia as well, um, that's probably got the highest um, or the most dangerous um, consequences to it because you can literally have organ failure and um, die from it. Basically,
1: that's right. Um, And I, but I think the thing with anorexia is there's something often quite shocking when you see someone with anorexia who's you know someone who's skeletal and looks fragile um, that we're confronted by that how unwell that person is. And I think one of the things that makes binge eating disorder and bulimia more difficult is that they're often invisible illnesses yes. um and there's still in in many cases just that mental anguish that the person's yes. living with and, and then having to fight to access treatment on top of that or being told that they're not sick enough to, to have yes. an eating disorder that's um that's really really um, tragic I think and really frightening. I, I agree with you and I, I think you know it, it's very important
0: to realise that you cannot tell by looking at someone if they have an eating disorder, because people can come in all shapes and sizes and have a huge deal of of turmoil going on internally. And really, I I know for instance, myself, it wasn't until I was anorexic and I was down to like 39 kilos and then people were giving me free food in the street and Mm. um, I was hospitalized, but it was because I looked a certain way, but I had had other diseases disorders when i'd actually felt worse when i looked a normal size but nobody realized and thought i was fine yeah. so I, I can totally relate to, to what you're saying and if anything it, it can be harder for people because
1: everyone thinks oh they're fine they're, they look normal nothing mm. wrong with them mm. so absolutely and then also the focus becomes around weight loss if someone's got yes. binge eating disorder it's okay just lose weight you know um, but the, the problem is that often people with binge eating disorder Engage in compensatory behaviour, even though it's not necessarily the diagnosis, um, the diagnostic criteria that that people with binge eating disorder often have had a long history of, of dieting. In my experience with people with binge eating disorder, their mindset and the internalised, uh, you know, food rules and all those sorts of things are very much parallel to someone with anorexia yes. in terms of the amount of time that the t- person spends thinking about food or food rules, the amount of time or distress if someone breaks those food rules so there's there's huge overlaps and it's um it's just um really unfortunate that that um it's not as obvious mm. and i would agree with you you
0: know i i see it um where there are very strict rules and what can be eaten and what can be eaten as a snack and what can be eaten at lunch and you know that there has to be very limited food in the day which will then compensate for the the binge or um so I've seen that um, with clients, and you know, personally as well. So I think, how hard is that then to convince someone who has got very strict food
1: rules to to soften on that? I think it's very difficult because people are often so fearful of weight gain, yes. fearful of change. And I think this again, it comes back to the fact that weight needs to really be taken off the the framework. Um, and the the goal for for treatment and recovery at least as a starting place Um, because if we think about you know i can think about lots of clients that we've had at body matters again who are sitting at a higher body weight and perhaps above their natural body weight because of their eating behavior that they're engaging in and are then candidates for things like bariatric surgery and obviously you can't fix a psychological problem with a physical intervention. Um, you know, we need to focus on building resilience, building coping strategies um, rather than focusing and so much on the I would imagine that would actually be quite dangerous as well because it's if they tr- yeah terribly it, dangerous. If someone's binging and purging you yeah. know, X number of times a day and they've just had surgery on Oof, their stomach. Yeah. Um, it's to me it's a there's there's some uh, I there's some great surgeons that we work mm. with. Um, but I, we hear of cases of existing mm. clients that, that we know have got very active eating disorders who are then um, candidates for, for surgery. Mm. And often they will get to a place where they have the surgery reversed, if that's possible. Um, but they're, they're exposed to any number of health risks in the yeah. meantime. So and that, you know, just, I guess... To me, if it's a mental thing, having the surgery,
0: that that desire to overeat is still going to be there, and, That's right. and if they want to eat, they, they will eat, but they'll just be eating all day, small amounts, yeah. rather yeah. Than, than large volumes at at one time. Yeah. So it really is a, a psychological issue that that needs to to be dealt with. Do you find um, people tend
1: to change eating disorders? Very, it's very yeah. common for people to change eating disorders. Um, yeah, very, very common. Um, I think, well, p- before the DSM-5 came out in 2013, the DSM-4 um, had anorexia, bulimia, and then... And what did that Can agree- you just clarify about that? The DSM-4 yeah. is the Diagnostic Statistical right. Manual of Mental Illness. So it was the classification. Um, before binge eating came in place um, in the DSM-5, it was the previous book that kind of defined uh, the different classifications of mental illnesses. But interestingly enough, about seven, there was anorexia, bulimia, and then this other category called EDNOS, eating disorders, not otherwise specified. And there was some research that suggests that 75% of people with eating disorders were actually in an EDNOS category, not with anorexia bulimia. Right. And I think this kind yeah. of reflects the fact yeah. that people may have some symptoms of anorexia, but they may not quite make the, cut off, um, the weight right. cut off or they may have some symptoms of bulimia, but they may not be engaging in. Or binge eating but they may not be engaging in in behavior frequently enough and so um, it's very common as as we've been saying for symptoms to change over the course of someone's illness and so for someone to start with one diagnosis and end up with a different diagnosis and and sometimes unfortunately people stop treatment um, because they're scared that they're getting worse when in actual Mm. fact in my view in Many cases, it's the pathway to recovery, yeah. you know, that there's things that yeah. we learn from different symptoms, and ultimately, that's the journey of, of learning to have a healthy relationship with food. Yeah,
0: and I, I think for me myself, one of the things that helped me the most was having regular eating. Mm. You know, I, I had grown up having, you know, maybe an apple for lunch because yeah. my mother never had lunch, so I just thought if I didn't have lunch, I would get fat. Um, completely bizarre way of thinking, but that's what I had learned to believe Um, and for me of course that would then lead to overeating but um, just having regular meals and not going for those periods of time when you get the blood sugar drop and the the cravings was something that was
1: as basic as it sounds life-changing I I couldn't agree more with you about that and I know it does sound very simplistic like you know and I I don't want to sort of for a second say that someone comes with an eating disorder that the prescription is just eat normally but just eating normally in a mechanical sense yeah. really is create some scaffolding yeah. for yeah. other work to yeah. To come in place, and to get to that stage takes yeah, the process,
0: absolutely. As well. And yeah. and it's I think trusting who you're working with. That's right. Because I think a, a common misconception is whoever you're working with is trying to trick you and make you fat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's a very common um, perception amongst people with with eating disorders. So it's knowing that who you're working with is is a trustworthy person that's helping you on the road to recovery that wants you to be fit and healthy, um, but definitely isn't wanting you to be unhealthy. Um, I think that's an important thing to to
1: clarify that's right and also that health it, it's not about getting fat It's it, but it is also about having a full life where um, the meaning and the significance of food actually doesn't prioritise everything and that's scary when yeah. it's so important and,
0: and I think you know when we, we're saying about getting fat or getting overweight what is that anyway because I think often if somebody has an eating disorder mentally they're their perception of what they look like can be so off that most people to me that look normal, a lot of those people will tell me
1: that they're overweight. Yes, that's right, there's a dis- there's a distortion in yeah. thought there.
0: Yeah, so I guess that's something to work with the psychologist such as yourself as well, on being able to understand what you really look like as well.
1: That's right. Uh, and I think also trusting, learning to trust your body again. And I mean, some people will end up sitting at a, a body weight that's higher than what they would want to, want to sit. That's the reality. And the perhaps one of the scary things when you're in recovery or thinking about recovery is you don't know where your natural body weight mm. actually is. And so I think in parallel to this, we need to be um, noticing and being aware of weight stigma and the the social context that we live in where weight is something that's really considered to be really scary and the worst thing uh, that can happen to anyone. Um, Because um, at the end of the day, um, we all come in different shapes and sizes and if we're trying to control our body to to an extent that it's not where our natural body weight and shape falls, then it's going to be very, very difficult and it might mean that we need to remain disordered to continue to do that.
0: Mm. And I guess it's about, yeah, as you said, finding that that right body um, weight and also understanding that you know some of us are naturally going to be bigger on the thighs, some are going to be bigger and thicker in the waist, and there's no set body shape that that we should be, so if we do see pictures on social media where they've probably been photoshopped anyway, the reality of looking like that person is is not really going to to be real is it It, it's about knowing um your body shape and embracing that and and learning to love your body and saying that on social media there are some amazing people doing amazing things when they're taking photos of themselves cellulite and and all the normal things that everybody has but is too scared to to show and there are some amazing people out there that are um showing themselves in a bikini looking as a normal person would mm-hmm. so that we we hopefully do overcome that fear of um
1: expecting ourselves to look like a supermodel that's right and i think that's that promotion of body diversity and all shapes and sizes it's a great thing and it's uh, I think it's one of the powerful things of social media. In the same way as we were saying before, it's easy to become preoccupied by so-called flaws and to yes. alter them. That the great thing is that there's a movement of people who are doing the very opposite, you know, and yes. and, and creating um, the idea that we all come in shape, different shapes and sizes, and that it's actually okay to have cellulite or you know have things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I I think the world would be a very boring place
0: if we all looked identical. And I do find it quite odd where people do try and morph. Um, and have surgery and will diet and do all these things and and change their appearance to look like another person um, or to look like a Barbie doll or whatever they're trying to look like. I I do find that quite an an odd concept when, you know, I think just embracing who we are and having that
1: self-esteem and that confidence to be you because nobody else is you. Absolutely. And I'm sure, you know, 200 years ago, if they knew that that was what was... Being done now, that people would all be engaging in behaviours to to make us look very similar, very, you know, very yes. homogenised. Um, that that I, I can't begin to imagine yeah. what people would think. Yeah. And I think ultimately the most attractive thing is confidence.
0: Mm. It, it's self confidence. It doesn't matter what anybody looks like if they ooze confidence. Um, that is the most attractive thing to people. So I think you know we get caught up in trying to fix the outside. But when we fix the inside and work on that, that's when we can can really make a, a big impact. That's right. And
1: that's also where we feel the best as well. Yep. So, yep. Yeah. So, fo- yeah, we look the best and we feel the best.
0: Absolutely. Well, I know, Sarah, that you're quite passionate about, um, you know, making changes in the the cultural environment that, that can become toxic on, on focusing on how we look. Um, for people that are listening that do feel that they may be suffering from any type of, of eating disorder or disordered eating, um, that feel they may be you know, looking at labels a little bit too much, even if it's just fixating on clean eating, mm. you know, form of orthorexia, what would your advice be? Because there's probably people out there that go, oh, I don't know if I'm classified as an eating disorder or maybe I don't want to be classified, but I do feel like I'd like a little bit of, of help. What would your advice be?
1: I think it's really important firstly to take it seriously. Yeah. It's easy to think that everyone eats like this or yeah. um you know, but ultimately if it's causing any level of distress, then that's something that needs to be taken seriously. The second thing I think is is actually working out how to get some people around you that support can support you. We have lots of inquiries over the internet. Um, you know, some of many of them I'm sure are anonymous inquiries because it's such a scary thing to yes. actually talk about um and let people know that something's not quite right. But I think the thing that I would see with people who recover is often they've got people around them to support them, um, You often perhaps family members if that's an option, um, for, for some people it's just not, um, but also having a treatment team, and so this is where it can get really scary, mm-hmm. um, actually talking to a psychologist or talking to a doctor, um, but, but really it's about having a starting place, even if you can find one person that's a professional that can you feel comfortable talking to, then they can work with you to expand a team around you to support you. And the reason why we need a team of people usually um, is that there's medical risks associated with eating yeah. disorders. Um, that that so much around recovery is re-learning, um, learning for the first time about nutrition, and so nutritional literacy. Um, which a nutritionalist like mm. yourself or a dietitian can be really helpful with. And I, I think that was a huge thing for me
0: when I understood what was going on in the body and the fact that food that you eat, you need for biochemical reactions in your body and those nutrients are there for a specific
1: reason. And if you're not getting them, things are going you know... Yeah, But it's just not the going, focus, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Know, in a really important way, definitely. And then the psychological element as well, because often, well, they, aside from the fact that eating disorders are classified as a psychological issue um, psychologists can help with building resilience and self-worth and coping strategies and so uh, having that part of the equation as well is really helpful but when you have a team as well you can feel much more cocooned um, mm. and so the, the scary thing often is finding someone um, the butterfly foundation is a good starting place at national eating disorder charity um, to give recommendations of doctors or psychologists or nutritionists who have a special interest in working with people who are suffering from disordered eating and so i'd say that that would be a really good starting place great and can you tell us just quickly a little bit more about body matters
0: i know you're the director of that and if you can explain some of the the services that that you offer so if somebody did want to come and see you um how can they how can they find you
1: so Body Matters, we're based in Sydney, um, although we do treat people all over Australia. I think about a third of our clients are from regional and remote areas, and there's some Fantastic. capital cities uh, like Darwin, for example, that have absolutely no eating disorder services right. there. So we do have a lot of people who access e-therapy. And predominantly our our work is individual therapy, um, so working with people on an individual basis uh, wherever they're at in their, on their journey to recovery um, and we we often have people staying with us for a long time not because they're um, sick for a long time but just to try and help with that relapse prevention space so once someone's in a place but that they're, they're well um to make sure that they don't revert back to disordered eating again and when you say staying with you you mean staying in contact staying in contact yeah. yes so that's what i mean so treatment usually might be weekly to start with and then yeah. some people might stay uh, as clients for a a couple of years after they're well but only come in a few times a year just as a, right. a check-in kind of
0: and you have support groups
1: too yeah so we yes. run support groups um, um so we run support groups for people with general eating disorders uh, for binge eating um, because one of the things we find we, often people say that they don't feel sick enough to have an eating disorder yes. or they feel that they're too fat to, to go to yes. an eating disorder support group um, and so that's one of the reasons why we started a binge eating group specifically because Um, we just wanted even though Mm. from our perspective as therapists you know there's so much commonality um, it doesn't feel safe for some people to go to a general eating disorder support group we also run something called recovery talk so that's uh, that's someone talking and sharing about their lived experience um, because there's in spite of the fact that eating disorders are so common there isn't a lot of discourse about recovery Mm. for a lot of people who've been unwell and um, you know, certainly I can think of this for myself, and um, you may relate to this. Mm. The idea that when you're see- for a lot of people seeking treatment and, and never knowing someone that's recovered or never knowing what it's like on the other side that that's a really really scary thing. And so um, we have them once a month as well. We have carers support groups um, for parents of teenagers as well as parents or Amazing. carers of adults, and we do group programs. And one one of the group programs that comes to mind it's a group groups isn't it? big part of our work but we do run mindful groups occasionally we run a group on exercise addiction specifically exercise addiction in the context of disordered eating so yeah. looking at the elements that maintain exercise addiction um because that's one thing i never had <laughs> yes yes
0: <laughs> but i know you know i'm not trivializing i know it's a very serious issue um, and i I've, I've known people to exercise to an extent where I didn't
1: know it was even possible for the body to do that much. That's exercise. right. And, and it's very dangerous in terms of it. like it just adds a whole heap of extra complications, oh, especially yep. when you're thinking about really serious injuries yes. that someone can sustain yep. from And, and heart issues and That's electrolyte right. imbalances and,
0: and all sorts of, of things when you're when you're exercising that much and, and probably weakened from a, an eating disorder as well. Definitely. That's, I, I think Sarah, thank you so much for talking to us today. I think what you're doing is incredible. Um, if I can support, and I've already said to you, if I can support in any way, I would love to. I just wish, you know, when I was in the the you know thick of it, that that there was um, someone like yourself that I I could come to because I I think it's such an important area that I think so many people struggle with, and probably haven't even admitted, you know, or don't even know that they've got it or know they struggle. But um, just as you were saying, maybe don't feel don't know if it's bad enough to be classified as an eating disorder so I think the more we can talk about this and the more people can share their experiences I think it's a wonderful thing it's an absolute pleasure thank you Fiona